Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke, continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke. If you're here, you do not have a Bible, there are Bibles on the pews in front of you, if you'll notice. If not, you can reach behind you. There should be one in the pew behind you, unless you're on the back row. And uh, make sure you have a Bible. want everyone to have a Bible to follow along. But uh, turn this morning, we are in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we're in chapter 8, starting a whole new chapter today. You remember last week, we left off, uh, concluded actually the story uh, of the lady who came to the home of the Pharisee who had invited Jesus over for dinner and uh, was no doubt looking for reasons to bring accusations against Jesus. And you remember the uh, prostitute came to the home of the Pharisee, which was scandalous in so many ways, and her tears fell upon Jesus' feet and and you'll remember Jesus used that as an opportunity to witness also to the Pharisee. No doubt the woman's life had been converted. The alabaster box was broken. And um, you'll recall that from last week. If you want a copy of that message, uh, we can get you a copy of that. Um, and uh, Mike, you see uh, Mike for that. This week we pick up our reading in chapter 8. So let's follow along, if you would, chapter 8 of Luke, verse 1. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward. And Susanna, and many others, who provided for him from their substance. Father, I pray this morning that, Lord, you would just allow me to be used. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that you fill me with your spirit. I ask that you would remove distractions from the listeners, and Lord, that uh, you would give listening ears to hear, that they might receive the truth of your word. And Lord, I pray the Holy Spirit of God to convict hearts and lives. If there's anyone, anyone here today that does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, Lord, thank you, number one, for bringing them here. And Lord, I also ask that you might convict them and draw them to the love that you offer them to the grace and forgiveness that's found only in Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. We give you the praise, for we ask it in that name that's above every name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, uh, I'm going to have to probably get one of my deacons to adjust that air, because this is going to be a hot sermon today. No, I'm just kidding. I'm already feeling it, man, and I'm not old enough to have hot flashes. But anyway, so if somebody doesn't mind, uh, uh, either bring me a hanky. Today's message is bringing glad tidings, bringing glad tidings. And as Christians, part of our mission, Christian, is to go into all of the world and take the gospel, the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, there's some people still in this world today that have never heard the name Jesus Christ. There are people still in this world today that 
have not heard the good news. And of course, before you can give somebody good news, they need to have an understanding first of the bad news, right? Because good news is only good if it's measured against something that's not so good. How do you know good? Have you ever thought about that? How do you know something's good unless you know bad? And again, if you come to our apologetics conference, these guys will definitely explain to you this is points to the fact that there is a God. It proves the existence of God, just the simple fact that there's morality in the world, the morality argument. If there's morals, if there's right and there's wrong, then that's evidence that there must be a lawgiver, a moral lawgiver, because you wouldn't know right and wrong. You don't determine right and wrong just because of your culture. If that's the case, Hitler was right for what he did. Who are you to argue Who are you to say he was right or wrong? Unless there is an objective truth that transcends mankind. That's another message, but I invite you to the apologetics conference because you will get that message. But I say this because we all have a responsibility, if you are here today and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, to take the good news into the world around you. To share the transforming message of the cross. Here we find in today's text, Jesus bringing this message to those throughout the Galilean area. Notice if you would in verse 1, and by the way, my first point is the preaching. The preaching. Notice what Christ did. Now it came to pass afterward. After what? After the story that we just finished teaching on last week, the story of the lady coming in, uh, the lady of the night, if you will, into the Pharisee's home. So after all of that took place, this happens. He went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. Luke makes it clear in his writing, when you read through Luke and read through the other gospel accounts, Jesus' mission was to preach and teach salvation. He came into this world to seek and to save that which was lost. And so here He is, He's taking the message and He's going from city and village there in the area. And by the way, you think about this, this is a very sobering thought. Jesus never left that region. His ministry, when you think about it, in scope was very limited, wasn't it? But think about the impact. Look at the world today. America wouldn't be what it is today apart from the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hospitals. Reading. I mean, you think about... We we don't even begin to fathom the impact... The gospel of Jesus Christ is had upon the globe as we know it even today. And so here's Christ, and I'm, I'm just speaking in a, in a natural sense. I'm not even speaking the supernatural. Obviously, the supernatural is, is at the heart of it, the spiritual. But think about it for a second. Here's Christ going into the different villages. He's preaching and He's teaching. And what message is He bringing? Well... Notice here in verse 1, it says that he went forth preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And we're going to talk about that phrase in just a minute because there's a lot of confusion around the phrase kingdom of God. 
And it's confused. A lot of times it's confusing even in good Bible-believing churches. So we're going to look at that from a biblical perspective here in a second, see what the Bible teaches about the phrase, the kingdom of God. But before I get there, I want us to, I want us to look at this word, caruso. It's a Greek word. When it says that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings. The word caruso, it means to publicly herald something. So he's proclaiming. Some of your translations may read proclaiming. He is proclaiming. He's heralding. It's like a town crier before they had newspapers and media. The king would send his authoritative representative. Notice what I said. The king would send his authoritative representative into the city and he would come into the city square and he would say, Hear ye! Hear ye! He'd lift his voice and he would proclaim a message from the king. And that's what's being described here. But in this case, here's King Jesus stepping into the city square. And he's lifting his voice and he's saying, Hear ye, hear ye. He came to bring glad tidings. We know what that is because Luke's already talked about this back in Luke chapter 4. Um, and, and you'll remember, in fact, turn back over there with me real quick so you get the context. Remember when, when uh, Jesus first arrived on the scene there in Galilee and he goes to the synagogue. By the way, you noticed in chapter 8, he's not in the synagogue, is he? Anyway, here it is. Uh, at this point in chapter 4, he's in the synagogue. Verse 18, well, let me back it up. Verse 16, so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Verse 20, Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, it's not this Joseph's son. I mean, these folks were just amazed at the authority in which Christ spoke and taught. And for him to have the audacity to say today, this passage of Scripture that was written thousand years ago, 700 plus years ago, is fulfilled today in your hearing? What's he saying? He's stepping on the scene and he's saying, I'm God in the flesh. That's the message he's saying. And so now we find him in chapter 8 going out into the villages and to the cities, and he is preaching. He is saying, hear ye, hear ye. He is lifting his voice. He is letting folks know. He is teaching the kingdom of God. The good news of the kingdom of God. The word preaching uh, also, it's, it's this word used here, and I'm not about to pronounce it, because every time here lately, Dustin, it must be your influence, my friend. 
but here lately, when I try to pronounce my Greek words, I, I, I kind of sound Spanish. So I don't know what's up with that. So I'm not even going to try this word here. But anyway, uh, my, my Greek teacher would be so upset with me. But uh, anyhow, the, uh, the word preaching, it also it means to, it's where our word evangelize comes from. Evangelism. And uh, he basically, he's, he's evangelizing, he was evangelizing the message of the kingdom of God. Now what about this message, this kingdom of God? Some often state that the phrase kingdom of God is different from the phrase kingdom of heaven. Anybody in here ever heard that taught? It's a different phrase from, okay, yeah, some of us have. And I will say this, for years I even taught this, that there was a distinction and a difference. Um, and a lot of that was my uh, dispensational background. Um, and, and again, I want to be careful that I say this. Within dispensational thought, there is, uh, they disagree on this. Uh, in other thoughts of camp in the uh, theological world, there's different thoughts on both sides of the aisle. So you can't really nail this down to one group or another. But I don't really care about that group or this group. I care about what does the Bible say? Thus saith the Lord. What, what about this phrase? Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. If you ever read through your scripture, you're going to come across sometimes kingdom of God. Sometimes you'll come across kingdom of heaven. Actually, you'll only find kingdom of heaven in Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. He is the one who used the phrase kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God. And some people say this, there's a distinction because one is dealing with an earthly realm. Basically, Matthew is, is using kingdom of heaven because, uh, again, he is addressing the Jews. And since the Jews rejected Jesus as their king and Messiah, the message of the gospel, the good news, has spread to the Gentile. And, and basically, and this is a Poor job of explaining it, but in summary, this is, this is what I want to say. There, God's not done with Israel. Okay, There is coming a national revival, if you will. They will one day see the one they rejected was indeed God in the flesh. And I don't want to get into too much end-time eschatology, but why do you think Israel is always at the center of all the tension in the world? Well, read the book. You'll understand why. Which is another amazing testimony that God is who He claimed to be and this book that we carry known as the Holy Word of God, the Bible, is indeed fact and truth. But God's not done with Israel. And He will bring them to repentance as a nation and embrace Him. And we believe that one day there will be a millennial kingdom on this earth. There will be a legitimate kingdom upon this earth. And Christ will rule and reign. And guess what? The believers in the church will also rule and reign with Him. So sometimes people confuse and say, well, this one's in reference to the spiritual realm. This one's in reference to the natural realm. And so it kind of creates this dichotomy in the interpretation of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. But what does the Bible say? Let me give you a couple of things here. Uh, I want to give you some this, this. Listen to what John MacArthur says in regards to uh, Matthew's account. Matthew was the only one that calls the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven. And he does that 32 times in his gospel. I think to help Jewish readers, because out of the intertestamental period, the 400 years between the Old and New Testament, there had developed a kind of strange sort of tradition in Judaism. 
And that was a refusal, very important, listen to this, there was a refusal to speak the name of God. The Tetragrammaton. The four Hebrew letters that we would translate Yahweh or Jehovah. The Jews came to the point where they felt that as an act of sacredness, an act of reverence, an act of worship toward God, they would display their unworthiness to even speak His name. And so coming out of that period, there was this desire not to speak the name of God, but to substitute something for the name of God. And heaven was the general substitute. And so a Jew, instead of referring to God, would refer to heaven. Essentially, what it means is the kingdom of God is the sphere in which God rules over those who have come to Him for salvation. God rules over those who've come to Him for salvation. The sphere of salvation over which God rules as sovereign monarch. That's the way we need to understand both phrases. Now, if you want to dissect and get in there and dig a little deeper and make your... That's fine, but there's no need to divide over this issue. We can debate it. That's fine. But the point is, it's overarching. And I'm going to give you some clear text from the Scriptures here in a second that I think will dispel any argument. But what is, what is John MacArthur saying in that? Here's what he's saying. You do it. I do it. Heaven, heaven forbid. Well, for heaven's sakes. We use the phrase a lot of times, right? Substituting. Heaven forbid. We'll, we'll use that sometimes in a substitution for God. That's what, this is how this came about. So here's Matthew in writing and pinning down as God, the Holy Spirit is moving upon him to write the words. Why would he, knowing he's writing a letter to the Jews, be offensive to them? So he uses the phrase of the day, no doubt, but he's referencing this. Turn with me. I'll give you a scriptural clarification. Turn over to Matthew. Let's look in Matthew. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. We'll get some clarification. Matthew 19, look in verse 20. Well, it starts in 16, Matthew 19, 16, but I'm not going to read all the way down through there, but you know the story. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But I want you to go on down to verse 23 so we get to the context and move past this point. Notice verse 23 of Matthew 19. But when the young man had heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, verse 24, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of what? God. He uses them interchangeably right here in this text. That's very clear. That's very evident. Well, as if that's not enough evidence for us, continue reading down to verse 25. It makes it even clearer. Verse 24, And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? No confusion on their part. When he's talking about the kingdom of heaven or he's talking about the kingdom of God, he's talking about that overarching sphere in which God rules and reigns. And guess what? It's a message of salvation. Are you a part of that kingdom? 
If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord, then you are not in the kingdom of God. But if you are in the kingdom of God, Scripture says, and we're going to be talking about this in our Sunday school class, we talked a little bit this morning about identity, identifying who you are. How does God see you? Does He see you in Adam? Because if you're here today without Christ, you're in your father Adam. Okay? Think about it. If your grandparents, this is a tough one, gang, y'all follow along. If your grandparents had never been born, would you be here? <laughs> no. In case anybody was confused on that question. No, you would not be here. And their parents, and their parents, and their parents. You were in the loins of Adam in the beginning. And when Adam offended God, sinned against God, and the curse fell upon man, because of sin, death entered the world. And that's been passed on generation after generation after generation. Ten out of ten people die, in case you didn't know that stat. Okay? We all suffer the same disease. It's death. The wages of sin is death. We're all sinners. We're all going to die. That's, that's bad news. That's bad news. But that's not even the bad enough news. Because some people think, well, you just die, you go to the, you go to the grave, you become you know, worm food. Mm-mm. There's a you in there. You go somewhere. There's only two places you can go. And it's not just the dirt. It's heaven or it's hell. And that's the reality. You can say, well, I don't believe that. <laughs> well, that's fine. Go stand in the middle of the freeway and say, I don't believe that Mack truck will kill me. You can believe it all day long, but I'm sure at the point of impact you will think, oh, ouch, I was wrong. Look, gang, truth is truth. It doesn't matter what arguments you pose against it. If it's truth, it stands. And there's a lot of people throughout time that have tried to argue against truth. In fact, the Bible says it this way, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because man loves darkness rather than light. And that's why he won't come to the light. Because in coming to the light, it exposes my deeds, it exposes my sin. And if my sin's exposed, then that's shameful. And I would rather just go hide in my sin than to bring it into the light and confess it and turn from it. But that's what God's doing. He's calling you. He's wanting to give you the glad tidings. He's wanting to give you the good news, but you've got to understand the bad news. And He's calling out to people, and He has been calling out to people since the beginning of time. There's a plan. There's hope. There's good news. He says, I'm not willing that any should perish. God doesn't want anybody to perish and go to hell. He's not willing that any should perish and go to hell, but that all would come to repentance. But He's also created man with free will. You have a choice. God's not going to force Himself on you. That'd be cosmic rape. Who wants? I mean, really, think about that. Forcing Himself, I'm going to make you go to heaven. Whether you like it or not, young man, young lady, you're coming with me. Get in this heaven. No. Think about that. Would you like to have had your mate chosen that way? You're getting married. 
I really don't want to marry this person, but I got to. I'm being forced. Now, I know some places they do that. But you know what makes it so honoring? Is the fact that they chose you, you chose them. Man, there's some great love displayed in that, isn't there? To willfully respond to the love that's been extended. And that's what God desires. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance, that you would turn to Him in faith and, and receive the gift that He's offering. This is the preaching. This is the message. This is what Christ is doing. He's offering Himself in exchange for you. Because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's a... Who would not want that exchange? I don't know about you, but I've done some pretty terrible things in my life. And I want to just, man, I want that gone. Well, guess what? It's gone at the cross at Calvary. It's gone at the cross at Calvary because He took those sins upon Himself. He took our shame. He bore our guilt, our grief, our shame. He nailed it to the cross at Calvary. He shed His blood for you and me. He died, was buried, and three days later, he proved he was God incarnate because he rose from the dead, victorious over death. You're going to learn a lot about world religions at our apologetics conference, but real simply put, one thing separates Christianity from all other religions. Jesus is alive. Amen? I mean, I know that's said many times, but do we really think about that? He's alive. He ascended to heaven. He ascended to glory. And he said, just as you saw him leave, he's coming back one day. That's the truth, whether you believe it or not. Well, I think Matthew 19 clears it up pretty good. His disciples understood what he was talking about when he used that phrase. And turn back over then to Luke. We'll get back into the text. I'm going to finish this up because I want to wrap it up a little earlier today, hopefully. Back over to Luke chapter 8. So here's Jesus. He's had the encounter with the, with the Pharisee and, and the woman of the night. And uh, here he's moving throughout the villages, the cities, preaching, bringing glad tidings of the kingdom of God. He's bringing salvation. He's offering hope uh, to those who are lost. Now what about the people? We, we've looked at the preaching, but what about the people? I think it's interesting here. Now, you notice there at the end of that uh, verse 1, the second part, 1B if we'll call it, uh, you notice that he says the 12 were with him. So here were those, and we just hit on this a few weeks back. Remember, he went up on the mountain to pray, seek his Father's will. Uh, He came back down and he chose the 12 apostles. So they're with him. So here are these men, these fishermen, these tax collectors, these guys of different backgrounds, and they're with him. But notice who else is with him. Notice, if you would, uh, the people here in verse 2. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward. And Susanna and many others who provided for him from their substance. You know, I, 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 I changed the name. This, this second point is the people. I, it sounded better than the problem with women. 
<laughs> I mean, I'm, you know, hold on, ladies, hold on. You understand what I mean? What I mean? There was a problem with women in this day. Rabbis forbid this. In fact, a woman during this time period that this was penned and written, she could get in trouble. Certain rabbis in, it would enforce this. She would get in trouble if she asked a question to be clarified that was taught, if she asked that of her husband in public, was considered shameful or disgraceful. Makes a lot of sense now when you think about women keeping silent, asking your husbands when you get home. That, that they're, you know, in a, that's another sermon another day. But I don't want us to lose sight of the context of the culture. In the culture, in the time period, women didn't follow the rabbis. The men did. And if the men wanted to, if the women wanted to know, the men, when they got home, they would teach their households and they would teach the women in that setting. But not publicly. This was, uh, this was different. Notice uh, MacArthur says in regards to the, the, the problem with women, he says the rabbis had an interesting view. They believed and taught that women were not capable of learning. That's what they thought during this time period. Hey, ignorance is bliss, I'm just saying. But there was a lot of ignorant, and there's, guess what? There's a lot of ignorant people today. But they had this belief and taught that women were not capable of learning. They were not capable of receiving spiritual instruction. In fact, there were laws made that forbid women to be taught by man in public, even her own husband. Socrates, you learn a lot about him in school. Male chauvinist. <laughs> Aristotle, oh, why don't we expose the truth of his... Hate for women. Demosthenes, other Greeks, also disdain teaching women. This is a fact. They didn't like teaching women. The Qumran, the ascetic community of Judaism, also had a low regard for women. John MacArthur. But not Jesus. Isn't it just like man to pervert stuff? I mean, you know, think about it. And yet, here comes God incarnate to clarify some things. Man, that was so challenging to the society of the day. I mean, we just heard the story of the lady coming into the Pharisee's home, and then she lets her hair down. Oh, shame after shame, disgrace after disgrace. She's scrubbing Jesus' feet. And now here's all these women... These women that were following Jesus Christ? You talk about revolutionary? This was revolutionary, wasn't it? And, and ladies, let's, let's be thankful, not to the women's lib movement, because they've done nothing but put you back in bondage. Jesus Christ set you free in a social sense, but He will set you free in a spiritual sense. I hope you understood that. Because sometimes we confuse that. Jesus Christ is doing something here on the scene in the day and nobody's done. And it is causing the religious to be outraged. It's causing the... I mean, this is like, whoa, what is going on? But what about these women? This is the awesome thing about these women. Check this out. Mary Magdalene. 
Um, it simply means that she was from Magdala. Sometimes we think that's her last name. It's like John the Baptist. You think that's on his business card or something. No. Magdalene was not her last name. She was from the town known as Magdala. It's, the, the modern town is pronounced Migdal. It's about three or four miles north of Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee. But that's basically where she was from because there's a lot of Marys in the day, right? There's a lot of Marys in our day. You know Mary from LaGrange? Even then you've got to do some clarification, don't you? But there's a lot of Marys following Jesus, so it became known that she was Mary of Magdalene. Now, here's something that may shock you. There's no real solid evidence that Mary of Magdalene was a prostitute. We've often heard that, right? That she was. My personal thought is, I think it's because this comes on the heel of the account that we just read about the prostitute coming into the Pharisee's home. And there's the other account that's confused in the other Gospels where there's a Mary, and they try to equate the two because the stories were very similar. But remember, we pointed this out last week. One is Simon the Pharisee. The other is Simon the leper. They're two different accounts. Very important to distinguish. So I think probably somewhere along the way it it, it got changed and and some people just kind of understood this. It doesn't really matter. What it does say, though, according to the Scriptures, Mary Magdalene was a woman who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. She was healed of seven demons. Now you know, I've heard other pastors say this, but the Scripture, number seven, a lot of times represents the number of completion. So simply saying, this lady was completely (laughs) demon-possessed. All right? She was completely demon-possessed. Jesus healed her. Not only did He cast out the demons, you notice the phrase, it says that also of her infirmities. Huh. You notice when you read through the New Testament, a lot of times when a person's demon-possessed in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, there are a lot of times physical things happening. There's sickness, there's epileptic seizures, there's different types of medical issues sometimes that are accompanying the demon possession. Now don't go out of here and say, my preacher said everybody's got epilepsy is demon possessed. I did not say that. But, let me say this, I do think our hospitals would look a lot different I think our psych wards would look a lot different if God's people went into those places full of the Holy Spirit of God and shared the gospel of the kingdom of God. I think lives would be different because I believe a lot of people, and we don't want to call it that today, do we? I think there probably are people still in this good old America that are demon-possessed. And it's possible, because I read in Scripture, it's very possible, that sometimes because of that demon possession, there are physical manifestations. And I just wonder, what would happen 
if instead of just giving medicine, and I'm not against medicine. Don't go out here. Pastor said he's anti-medicine. I've heard him say it several times. No. What I am saying is we fail to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ first and instead we sedate oftentimes the problem. What's it going to hurt to give them Christ? See if they receive Christ. See if He begins to do a transforming work in their heart and their mind. You might just find that person that struggles with high blood pressure has less stress. Right? I mean, that's not so far of a stretch, is it? Anyway, this is a rabbit trail, so we'll get back on the hunt. Point is, Christ came to set the captives free. Here's a lady that was demon-possessed. She had infirmities. What they were, I don't know. But He healed them. Yeah, well, that's Jesus. Yes, that's true. Very true. And we need to make that distinction. Notice who else was in this group. There was a lady named Joanna. And she's the wife of Cusa. That's a cool name, ain't it? Cusa. I know Carlton's going to get him a Cusa sitting next to when he watches a game today, right? No, 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 that's a different kind of... Sorry. Hold his root beer. That's right. Evidently, uh, the wife of Cusa, Joanna, her husband, Cusa, was a high-ranking manager within the palace of Herod. And this guy's like one of the main boss hogs in the, in the, in the household of Herod. In fact, it's, it's probably, he probably even uh, ruled over the personal estate of Herod, over his own household. This guy had a great responsibility within the household of Herod. I mean, here's the one that's wanting Jesus killed. He's having John the Baptist beheaded. I mean, this guy's calling the shots around, around town. And one of his high-ranking officials... His wife has been transformed by the gospel of Christ. I like it. I like it. Notice what happens. Uh, Also, uh, by the way, Joanna remained faithful to the end. How do I know that? Anybody in here know why Joanna remained faithful to the end? Yeah, she's at the resurrection. She's at the resurrection. She's named with them. So, So here's a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Susanna. We don't know a whole lot about Susanna. Um, I, I kind of joked at first there, there was a song named after her, which is a terrible, terrible, terrible song. I didn't know this until I did research. Terrible. Do not sing that song to your kids. Do not teach your kids that song. It ought to be banned. I'll leave it at that. Many others. Many others. This was unprecedented. This is scandalous. Women are following this guy Publicly. And what were these women doing, though? This is, this is interesting. Notice this. This is point three, my final point, the provisions. Notice verse three, the second part. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod Stewart, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. They provided for him uh, from their substance. The word there, some of yours may be translated, they ministered. It's the word diakoneo. It's where we get our word deacon from. I'm not going there today, but anyway. That is where the same word, same root word, because they're serving. And the true definition of a deacon, we're getting ready to nominate some deacons and got some good godly men named, and I'm thankful for that. But you know what? 
You want to know what a deacon does? They serve. Let's keep it simple. They minister. They serve. And this is the same root word used here in regards to these ladies. They were ministering. They were serving. And how were they serving? They were serving out of their own substance. They, in other words, this is the uh, Greek word, huparkante. Let's see, it sounded a little bit. Anyway. Um, it means possessions, goods, wealth, property. Possessions, goods, wealth, and property. This is how they were ministering to Jesus. They were donating to His ministry, in essence. No, this is not going to be a message on tithing and giving. We'll let Holton do that tonight. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, <laughs> that was shame on me, Holton. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to throw you under the bus like that. Maybe I did. Um, but, they were sustaining His ministry. They were supporting Him in this fashion. These men are going out and they're preaching the good news and they're teaching and, and people are coming to know Christ. Well, that doesn't, you know, there's got to be provisions for that. Now, isn't this, this is awesome. Think about this. Jesus is God incarnate. He could have just told them, hey, go down to the lake, pull out your net worth of fish and look inside all of them and there's going to be a bunch of coins. That'll sustain our ministry. He could have done that. He could have created money right in his hands, right? Could have. There's a lesson here. There's a good lesson, I think, in this. He was receiving worship from these ladies in this sense. And this is part of our worship. When we give, when we, when we have, whether it be of, of, of our time, our talents, our house, our, our property, whatever it is, we're, we're, are you using those resources that God has entrusted to you for the furtherance of His kingdom? There's a great lesson in this, and we could go a lot more into it. I'm not going to, but basically, you know, Acts 20, 35 says, I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of Jesus Himself that He said it's more blessed to give than to receive. You know you're most like Christ when you're giving. Because God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son. And that whosoever shall believe in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, conclusion. God was and still is about preaching the kingdom of God. He desires to reach all people. Think about this. Think about the type of people. He was breaking down barriers. He's reaching the women. That was a cultural taboo. He desires to reach all people, but especially the outcasts, the rejected, the hurting, etc. You know you got a lot of those people around you? What are you doing to reach them? Are you? He accepts the worship of the transformed. These ladies had been transformed, and you need not miss that. These men had been transformed. And when someone has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are compelled to love Him and serve Him. They are not trying to pay back Jesus what He's done in their life. This is the natural outflow of, of great thanksgiving and worship and honor because they've been set free from the bondage of sin. 
One of them's had seven demons cast out of her. You think she's grateful? Of course she is. And you guys who've been transformed by the grace of God, you've gone from death into life. And you can't help but have a transformed, changed life and an attitude of, praise God, I am thankful to be able to come to church on Sunday. I want to come to church on Sunday because I want to worship my God and Savior with other believers. Now, I don't just worship Him on Sunday. I worship Him today, tonight, tomorrow, throughout the week because the best worship you can give Him is your life. And that's what these ladies, these men had done. Their lives had been transformed. See Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's your reasonable act of worship. He provides what you need and those provisions should be used to bring Him glory. Are you worried about provisions today? Are you worried if He's going to meet your needs or not? You don't need to worry. Look at the lilies. He's clothed. Look how he's, he's, he's clothed the earth. Think about the birds. Not one of them falls to the ground, right? Without it coming across his table first. He knows. He's watching out. How much more does he love you? Don't worry about the provisions. He provides what you need. And those provisions he provides should be used for the glory of God. Think about the lives to this point that have been transformed as a result of the grace of God. Jesus is going about offering the message of hope, freedom, transformation, the forgiveness of sin. I close with this illustration. John Curson in his commentary shares the story of a convicted mail fraud man. This guy, is he's convicted of mail fraud in the 1830s. George Wilson was sentenced to death. But since Wilson's brother had done Andrew Jackson a great personal service, President Jackson wrote George Wilson a pardon. When the pardon was delivered to his cell, however, Wilson refused to take it. The man sentenced to die refused to receive the pardon. What to do? When the case went before the Supreme Court, Chief Justice John Marshall wrote this decision. A pardon is a slip of paper, the value of which is determined by the acceptance of the person to be pardoned. If it is refused, it is no pardon at all. Simply a piece of paper. Thus, George Wilson must be hanged. So too... You're forgiven, Jesus says, if you'll take the pardon that's offered. If you don't, you render it meaningless and you will be sentenced to death eternally. Let's pray.